Right. What do you think? You think the Ford Fiesta can make it to the snow? I think I should. I think I can risk it. What do you think? It's only my family's life we're talking about. Not a big, not a big deal. Oh, I want to go so bad, but we don't have an all-wheel drive vehicle, so we're going to figure it out. We're going to get snow somehow. Well, um, today we're talking about how Jesus is better than our inadequacy, and uh, all of us in different categories feel inadequate about something. I think that was highlighted a little bit at our father-child event that we had this Saturday. We wanted to have a simple carpentry project to work on. Not just simple for the kids, but some dads, I've I've read about these dads, um, as I look in the mirror, I see one. Some dads are just not that good with tools. And um, so we wanted everyone to be able to succeed in this event. So we told all the dads to bring a hammer and a screwdriver. The screwdriver wasn't even needed. We just thought maybe it would make it seem like a cooler project if you had a screwdriver, but we didn't use it the entire time. We just hammered nails into wood, and it was something that all of us could do. So it took all the pressure off of me being an adequate uh, construction worker myself. But what was cool was when my kids would, would work on it, you know, you want to let them do the project, right? They should be the one that's, that's working on it, not the dad making it perfect. And so they're doing the project, and finally they always get to a point Dad, can you help me with this? Dad, can you just help me with this? And that's the sweet time that we were hoping for. We didn't get together and say, kids, go over there and play, and dads, we're going to have a building contest over here. We wanted the kids to work on something that was a little beyond them, where they needed just a bit of help. And one specific time, I remember my kids were slamming at that, you know, that nail, but they were hitting it on an angle, so it just wasn't working, and be able to tell them, hey, stand up and hit it like that. And I do have a, a couple cuts from, from that event, from that hammer hitting dad, which I'm not sure if it was on purpose or not, but they were able to do it themselves, and it was such a sweet moment. They had to ask for help. Sometimes when we feel inadequate, We still try and push through and prove to everyone, no, we got this. Other times we ask for help. Let's look at a quick definition of inadequacy and what it means here. It just means a a lack of the quantity or quality required or the inability to deal with a situation or with life in general. Sometimes we just feel, I'm inadequate at life, right, at at everything. An example is I might feel inadequate at my job or struggle to have confidence in my ability to manifest my dreams, or I, I might just feel like I'm failing at adulting in general. That's the example given in the dictionary. Sometimes we just feel like we're failing at everything. We don't, we don't have what it takes to get past our obstacles. I know this feeling. My wife knows this feeling because she's kind enough not to rub it in, but I try and work on projects around the house, but behind the scenes, my wife is making a list of honeydew projects that are really grandpa-do projects for when my dad comes into town from New Jersey, we put him to work. Doesn't matter if you see the kids, dad, you need to work on our house and my wife is happy with my family, even if she's not happy with, with me and my ability. I'm just not adequate in that area. I'll try, even when I go and I try and partner with my dad on these projects, all that means is bring the credit card to Home Depot, that's my partnership, and then I just talk to him and we get caught up while he's fixing our home. Today, as we look at Hebrews chapters 7 and 8, we're going to be reminded that we rely too much on others, too much on ourselves, and not enough on Jesus himself, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. And so, we're in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to look at the first paragraph here, where it says, this Melchizedek, this is someone that was brought up in connection to Jesus being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. 
And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think of how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him one-tenth of the plunder. And then in verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. This portion of the scripture we're looking at is a reminder that even our best leaders are inadequate to save us. The example given is the, the priesthood of Aaron, right? The Levitical priesthood. Those priests were not able to change the hearts or even the actions of the Israelites. The best they could do is provide a temporary covering for their sins when through the sacrificial system. But they couldn't change them. These people would come back every year and confess the same sins. They'd come back every year saying, we failed again in this area. And the priests, unable to change the heart and the actions, could just temporarily cover for that through the sacrificial system. But even in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14 is what is being referenced here, we see a better priesthood than Aaron and, and the Levites. And it's this guy, Melchizedek. He's got a great name and an interesting brief story that is significant enough that it comes up a few times in the New Testament. In Genesis 14, Abraham had to go rescue his nephew Lot, who was living in Sodom. And Sodom was, was overtaken by another king. And their people were captured and taken hostage and brought somewhere else. And Abraham finds some trained men and he goes in and he fights and he takes back these people and what was stolen and brings it back. And on his way back, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, they were so thankful to Abraham. They're like, hey, keep the stuff, just give us the people. And Abraham said, no, you keep all of it. You're not the ones that are making me rich. God is, God is making me rich. I don't want that kind of a connection to those two cities. But then he bumps into this king of Salem, Melchizedek, this mysterious character that Abraham gives a tenth of everything to and honors. And Abraham recognizes he's a king and he's a priest. That combination wasn't allowed in the law. In fact, when we see a king of Israel try and enter into the tabernacle or the temple, it ended really badly. They'd get leprosy or some kind of a punishment because the king wasn't to take the priestly role. And Melchizedek kind of symbolized the priesthood of, of Jesus because they didn't really know where he came from. They didn't really hear about his death. They didn't know his genealogy. And so it's a picture of Jesus always being there, always and forever, our high priest. And so Psalm 110 is quoted that the Messiah is priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, not, not the Levites. And that's really a technical Bible thing that's happening here. But the picture that we're supposed to look at is this king of righteousness and this king of peace reminds us of Jesus, our king priest. Jesus is both king and our high priest. And so we learn from this that the Israelite the priests, they couldn't help. They temporarily covered the sins but couldn't change the hearts of the people, just like our leaders today are inadequate to save us when it comes to spiritual matters. They can help. Leadership is a gift. Leadership is good. Leadership can be a gift from God directly, but leaders are not God, and they can't replace God. And so 
Today, when we look at those that are leading us, we have different categories, like a, like a typical pastor. They all start with the same letter. Sometimes even when you don't want to alliterate, it happens, and you, you can't even stop it. It's an addiction. But the letter P here for parents. We look to our parents, and maybe, maybe sometimes our situation is we feel like our parents have hurt us, and they've, they've permanently damaged us, and so we're not going to be able to do anything. Or maybe it's us as parents that we're worried about. Oh, if only my kid had better parents, they'd be able to succeed and and thrive in life. Listen, parents largely do the best they can and fail because we are inadequate. Now, we are called to be parents, and we are just what our kids need in the role of parenting, but we can't be God to them. We can't fix them. We can't even change their hearts or their actions. Only God can do that. Even when we're trying our best. And so just this, this past weekend, it was reminded to me about how inadequate I am as a parent, where I, I read in James with, with my children. I read with my daughter. I read James 1, 19 to 20, where it talks about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And so I journaled for my discipleship group. I don't want to be an angry parent. Like, I want to be gentle and calm and loving, even though everything a child does tries to get you to be frustrated with them, right? And so I'm praying this. I told my daughter this is a goal of mine. I don't think I I particularly struggle with, you know, being overly angry or anything, but I hate when I have anger like that. And so we're driving in the rain on Saturday morning to a father-child event. This is my journal entry. This is my goal in my heart. And with all that, I see somebody walking in the rain. And I'm like, we're early. This is a great chance to show my kids about generosity. Hey, let's go bring our good umbrella, the big, you know, the $5 Home Depot one, the really good one. It's, it's big. I don't know how it's $5. Let's go give it to this guy who's walking down um, the road here. Let's give it to him. He's walking in the rain. Something bad must have happened. And my kids start like fighting over it. No, that's our favorite umbrella. I'm like, we are in a dry car. This guy's walking along Baxter Road here, Wildemar Trail, and he's just like struggling. No, we're going to give it. And they're just fighting over it. I'm like, I will buy us three more of these umbrellas, but we're giving this guy the umbrella. And they keep on pushing back and forth. And finally I go, listen. (laughs) And I'm yelling. I'm yelling. I'm like, there will be a day. This sounds so stupid now that I have to tell you. (laughs) Why doesn't it sound stupid in the moment? It sounded brilliant. But I'm yelling at my kids saying, There will be a day when you will be walking in the rain and someone will need to give you an umbrella. And the Bible says you will reap what you sow. And so we're going to give it to them so that one day someone will give you an umbrella. And they're like, Dad, what are you talking about? So then they start being kids. Why wouldn't we just bring in an umbrella on that future hypothetical day? And I'm just, so finally we, we drive up to this guy. He's wearing perfect rain gear because he's just exercising in the rain. I'm like... So I'm like, hey, do you want our umbrella? He goes, no, this is beautiful. I go, sure is. (laughs) Stupid. And I show up at a father-child event, having just yelled at my children, having just journaled about the anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Parents do the best they can, but we are inadequate. But we also don't have to carry the weight of being the all in all for our children. That's not our role. We're, We're to be parents, not God. Sometimes we we look to politicians and we think, well, they're going to fix it. If I can just get this person elected, everything's going to be fine. But they're not enough, no matter who gets in. And sometimes how frustrated we are with the political system can show that we're expecting too much from politics and too little from the church and from Christians. 
Even pastors will disappoint. We don't want to, but we will. We may, we may overlook you and your giftings. We may dismiss your problem as, as not really a big deal. We don't want to do this. We may fall into sin ourselves. Pastors aren't God. Even though we want to help, it's not about relying on even a spiritual leader in our lives. And so instead of expecting too much from, from parents, politicians, and pastors, we need to look to the great high priest, Jesus. And verse 26 tells us this. It says, such a high priest truly meets our needs. Our greatest needs are always spiritual in nature, and Jesus is the one equipped to save us. He is the one that is going to help us. And so when we overly rely on other people, we often damage that relationship. We expect so much from someone that we, we ruin it because the, the expectation is just too high and no person could live up to that expectation, only Jesus himself. And so our leaders are inadequate to save us and it's wrong that we think otherwise. Now as we continue in chapter seven, verse 12, we see this. It says, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. We see here that even our own strength to obey God and his law, it's inadequate. We don't even have what it's take even knowing the word of God, knowing the law to live it out apart from Christ. The writer says about the law that it's weak and that it's made nothing perfect. And we're going to talk about the benefit of the law and what the real problem is, but the, the law can't make us perfect. The very fact that there are rules isn't the issue. Often I think in, in parenting, if I just, I'll just change the rule. I'll just try and change the rule and we'll make this the new rule, that's the new rule. We'll, we'll make chores reinforced because you get money for chores or no, chores are just a part of being a part of the family and, and there's all different things you try and do, but it doesn't always work. The law makes nothing perfect. The picture I see is, I see Bart Simpson, you can see a different movie, but you picture Bart Simpson just writing on the board, like I won't, I won't do that stupid thing that I'm always doing and, and you write the law time and time again thinking Knowing the law more or writing the law more is what is going to save us and help us, and that's not the right use of the law. So when we read that the law is weak and has made nothing perfect, we may be tempted to believe the problem is with the law. But the scripture is clear that the law is perfect. Psalm 19.7 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119 is a chapter entirely dedicated to how beautiful and amazing the law of God really is. And so scripture is clear, the law is perfect. It's not being contradicted here. But logic is also clear. I mean, which of the 10 commandments would you be bold enough to say we don't need? Right, in our best moments, we want to live out the 10 commandments and we want the people around us definitely to live out the 10 commandments. So which, which of these, this is, if you've been over my house for a meal, you've seen this, it sounds like a total pastor house, right? You've seen the 10 commandments by our dining room table and you probably roll your eyes saying, pastors are the worst, right? Yeah, but their, their wife and their kids are amazing, but yeah, pastors are the worst. And so you've got these 10 laws and, and I got this little Hobby Lobby thing, why? affordable because it was Hobby Lobby, but also, uh, but because I, I think the Ten Commandments are, are beautiful. I think it's helpful. I don't want to murder people. I don't know, God, maybe we should bend on that one. You shall not commit adultery. No, you shall not steal. 
You, you can't give false testimony. No, I think we should lie. We should lie to everyone, right? Um, you don't covet. I mean, which of these would we change and say, I'm smarter than God, I'll get rid of one of these commandments? Logic even shows us, no, in our best moments, we want society to function like this. I hang this in by the dining room table not to scare my children. It's not a cool pastor trick. You shouldn't be taking notes saying, yeah, scare your kids with the Ten Commandments. No, but I think it's beautiful, and I think we should know the Ten Commandments. I've already mentioned this story, but I can't help but repeat it, looking at number six here, you should not murder. One time after we hung this, I, I, it was, this was during a COVID lockdown, and I, I told my son Gideon, he was just sitting there on the couch reading a book, I said, you know, Gid, you know, you can't murder. You can't murder, it's the sixth commandment. You can't murder people. He goes, Dad, I know, I know. And I was like, oh, good, the joke's working. He goes, I know you can't murder. You can't even be within six feet of people, so how could you murder them? And I said, well, hold on, whoa, hold. yeah, but... You know there's lots of good reasons not to murder people besides social distancing, right? He goes, yeah, but you can't even do it right now. I was like, okay. And I didn't think it was the appropriate time to say, well, actually a bow and arrow gets you out of six feet. Like I didn't think, that wasn't the right part of the situation to correct, uh, but it's, it was terrifying. I remember just really making sure with his children's ministry teachers and see kids like, is he a good boy? Is he, is he angry at anybody? And I didn't want to tell the other parents to worry. But, Mike, which of these commandments do we want to get rid of? The law helps us in so many ways, even today, as believers in Jesus. Psalm 19 continues to say that the law refreshes our soul. It refreshes our soul because it helps us to know God's heart for us. When we read in the law and we see the goodness of, of God's intention for us and how much he loves us, that he would give us good guidelines to follow because he wants us to be successful and to flourish it's a blessing. And so reading the Bible every day, it just refreshes the soul, even though it's a hard habit to get started with. Psalm 19 also says that the law makes wise the simple, right? It, it can make anybody have wisdom and discernment because we know what is right, we know what is wrong. And as we see God's heart for us and for his people, we begin to make good decisions about this world. And we know what is going to hurt us and what isn't going to hurt us based on knowing God's word. We know what is right. Romans 7 says that you wouldn't even have known what sin was apart from the law. And so we get to know ourselves that we are sinners, that we struggle with sin, that we're in bondage to sin. But it goes on to say, you wouldn't even know that you were coveting if it didn't say you shall not covet. It's one of the reasons we know that we're sinners is because the law shows us what is perfect and righteous. And then when we do the opposite, we say, wow, I'm, I'm not measuring up to the law of righteousness. And in 1 Timothy 1.9, it, it says, the law isn't really even for the righteous people that love the Lord. The law is for lawbreakers and rebels. It's really, it's for society to function. It's for those that don't know God to at least have some boundaries and so that they can be arrested and, and thrown into prison so that society can be safe. We can know safety because of the law. So the problem isn't because of the law. The problem is because of how we use the law. It's how we try and use it. Romans 3.20 says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in, in God's sight by the works of the law. If we use the law to try and earn righteousness from God, to say, I'm doing better because I'm obeying the law, so God must allow me into heaven because, look, I'm not committing these, these big sins, and so I must be good before God. No, you don't earn righteousness by works of the law. 
In fact, the law really just is designed to show us that we're sinners. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I think, well, that's a little rough, but it, it makes sense. Just breaking one of God's holy commandments is enough for there to be separation between us and God, for us to be declared sinners. There's no judge even on earth that will pardon one crime because the person hasn't committed other crimes. That's just not gonna work, right? Like, yeah, listen, uh, judge, I know, I know I stole this person's car and you probably want me to give it back, but you need to know that I don't lie, that I don't speed when I'm in this person's car, I don't break the law, I pay traffic tickets when I'm in this person's car. Like, the, the judge is gonna be like, you know, he really is a good guy, let him keep your car. No, that's not righteousness, that's not justice. Breaking one law is enough to be judged by the law. The law represents the will of God. And if we just keep the parts of the law that we think are agreeable to us and break the parts of the law that are disagreeable, we are showing that we are against God's will because we're choosing to say, I know better in this category of God's will than he does. You think of, you think of a chain holding something up. The chain br breaks at one link. Right, it breaks, it doesn't have to break at all of them all at the same exact time, just one link means the chain is going to break and so we can't use the law to try and be righteous, that's not going to work. Listen, the best the law can do is reveal our heart's condition, not change our heart's condition. And so the problem is not with the law, but we see in chapter eight, verse eight, it's with the people. It says, God found fault with the people. We recognize the, the law makes sense. I appreciate the law. And like, the, like, like Paul says in Romans 7, 14, the law is spiritual. I'm unspiritual. We have to recognize the best description of ourselves is to say the law is holy and good. The problem lies within me. And that's a war inside of ourselves. We constantly battle loving God's word and, and yet disobeying it. And, and it's a battle that you can really empathize with because we're, we're living it out. Even the Apostle Paul felt this. He said in, in, Acts, uh, in Romans 7, 21, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think we can all say that we've been there. Where Paul is in, in chapter seven is saying, I want to do better. I want to live out the word of God. I, I wanna be a good husband. I wanna be a good dad. I wanna be a good citizen. I wanna be a good neighbor to the people around me. But then there are times where even though I know that's the right thing to do over there, I just go in the opposite direction. And I hate that about myself. Paul says, I'm a wretched man, is the description of the greatest missionary of all time. He's like, I'm just wretched. There's a war within me. This is after he's a believer. There's still a war with the flesh and the spirit. And we wanna walk in the spirit, but the flesh can still be strong in our lives. We've felt this battle in our own lives. And thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's only Jesus that can help us. And we see that as we continue in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter seven, verse 19, it says, and a, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. 
Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. In chapter eight, it says, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and now we have a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31 on the new covenant that was prophesied and promised to the people of Israel that we get to live in. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. We see here that Jesus is the only one that can overcome our inadequacy. We, we, we see that others aren't going to be able to save us, that we can't save ourselves, but Jesus overcomes our inadequacy. So how does he do this? He solves the problem we see with a better hope, a better covenant, better promises. It's all summed up as the new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31. And so why is this new covenant going to work this time around, even though the other one, you could say, didn't? It was a good covenant, but it didn't necessarily work. Well, the other covenant was an agreement between two people. God had his part, the people had their part. But this covenant moves from language like, we will do this, to language like, I will do it. God is saying himself, I'm going to accomplish this. They're, they're too inadequate, they're too weak to do this without my help, so I'm going to save them. And in this new covenant, we, we receive three advantages that we didn't previously have. And the first is this, we are given a new heart. Our old heart isn't able to just do better because we memorize more law and we say do better. We need a new heart. Verse 10 says, when it comes to these laws, I will write them on their hearts. I'm going to put them in their minds. They're not going to need to memorize it. I'm going to basically lead them by the Spirit. I'm going to tell their heart what they need to do. We're given a new heart and the difference is, the difference means everything. It's the difference between wearing a sports jersey of your favorite team and then suddenly being given the ability to be on that team. We all have our favorite teams and sports jerseys that we wear, and we say, yeah, I, I'm rooting for them. This is my team. I want them to win. Sometimes we even critique and say, if only that quarterback or point guard would have done this instead of that, they would have won, and we think we're experts. We're wearing the jersey. We're showing our support. Isn't that night and day from all of a sudden having the ability to be on the team to actually make a difference? That would require a miracle in my case. It doesn't matter how much I like basketball. It would need a miracle of giving me new ability to be able to be on an NBA team. I don't have that ability. I can't practice hard enough to get it. It would require a miracle. They'd, I would have to have that ability given to me. And we are given a new heart. We're also given a close relationship with God. 
We're given this access that much of Hebrews is, is written about. It says in verse 11, they will all know me. We will have a relationship with God where he will look at us and say, I know you, I want to help you, I want to be a part of your life. And we'll be able to look at God and say, I know God. I know his voice. I know this is his leading because I have a, a friendship with God. I have a relationship with him. So we're given a new heart, we're given a brand new relationship. Instead of it being through the high priest, now we approach God directly, but we're also given a new conscience in the sense that we are forgiven of our sins. Verse 12 says, I will remember their sins no more. God doesn't just become forgetful, God doesn't erase his memory. What he's saying is I won't hold these sins against them anymore. They can have a clear conscience no matter what they've done in the past. Imagine what we could do with a clear conscience. We know our shortcomings, we know our failures, we know when we've hurt other people, but to be forgiven and to not have it brought up again. It's one thing to be forgiven, right? It's another thing to be forgiven and a few months again, it's rubbed in your face. <laughs> that doesn't really feel like forgiveness. And it's okay if someone is, for, is forgiving you and they have to also show you this is a big pattern, this is a big pattern, you need more help because this is a big pattern. That can be, that can be helpful. But something that you've honestly confessed and you've gotten right with the Lord on, you've gotten right with that person, to have it thrown back in our faces hurts so bad and maybe we're the ones throwing it back in someone else's face because it still feels good and it still hurts us. Well, that's not true forgiveness. God is saying, I'm gonna remember their sins against them no more. And so this new covenant can work because we're given a whole new heart, a relationship with God to stay close to him and we are being forgiven of everything. Now this covenant is given further detail by the prophet Ezekiel. I wanna read about this new covenant in Ezekiel 36. The prophet says, I, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. This description of the covenant makes it even more clear that we are given a new heart by the picture of saying, our heart before just didn't work spiritually. It was like a heart of stone, but now we were given a real heart, a new heart, a heart of flesh. And in Jeremiah, it says the laws are gonna be written on that heart, but it's, it's a complete swap. And so it's a very normal feeling before your relationship with Jesus to say, I just can't seem to do better. I just can't seem to do it. I'm inadequate. I, I don't have what it takes to follow after God righteously. You're right. We need to be given that ability as we are given a new heart, as we are regenerated, right? As, as, as God makes us new in him. And we have a... We have a kind of a, an amazing, powerful illustration in our church of, of this concept. There's a guy in our church named Isaac Gonzalez. He's 20 years old, and um, he was born with a, a single ventricle heart defect. And so that's when only one of your two pumping chambers of the hearts are, are working, and the other one isn't large enough or strong enough to work correctly. Isaac has had 17 surgeries to work on this, from, from birth all the way up 17 different surgeries. His heart just wasn't working. It just wasn't functioning. And then, and then as he caught mono and different sicknesses, his body was just having a hard time fighting it off. And they said, you need a heart transplant. We just can't fix it anymore. Your heart isn't able to, to overcome this. 
this heart isn't going to work to get you to live. And so in, I think it was January 2021, he was given a new heart and received a heart transplant and it's working. And funny enough, Isaac, you're sitting right here today, right? Thought I wasn't gonna see you, huh? Sneak attack me, right? But listen, I mean, it's just, it's, it lit, can you imagine? Isaac has a picture I didn't put on the screen of him holding his old dead heart. I said, that's a little bit too much for a Sunday morning. That's more of a Sunday evening picture after some football and stuff. And he's got maybe, that's just a little, it was, and it is, it is broken. It is, it is not working. And the thing that's, that's sad but necessary is that someone else had to die for Isaac to receive his new heart. And in fact, it was an only child that died. And so can you imagine the mother and father who are still alive losing their only child, but knowing that their, their child's heart is still beating in someone else's heart, giving them new life? You think, man, it's, it's tragic, and you don't, you don't want that. And as, as he's on the, the list to get a heart transplant, he's not praying that people are going to die. He knows this is tragic, but it has to happen for him to live. Is there not a clearer picture of what Jesus did for us, laying down his own life so we could be a part of the new covenant and receive a new heart. Our old heart wasn't going to cut it. It's not possible for us to just do better in life. We need to have our heart swapped out completely so we can have new desires for the Lord, new desires for his word, so that we can now have the ability to follow after God because of the work that he did, a miraculous work of making us born again and giving us a new heart. It's sad to look at this and say, I, I'm so inadequate to save myself that Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die because of my inability to save myself and he was glad to do that. Yet now in Christ, I'm a new creation and I can even be confident in Christ because it's, it's the heart that he gave me that I'm confident in, not in my own ability. He's completely switched things around. So what do we do with our inadequacies besides walk in moment by moment dependence on God best shown through prayer? If we believe that we are inadequate to save ourselves, to change our situations, the most appropriate response that we can have is to say, I need to beg the Lord for more help. I'm relying too much on other people, programs, and things to help me in my life. I need to rely on God more. I'm relying too much on myself to make new habits and form these new, you know, good decisions that I'm making. I need to rely on God to do that. If you're a follower of Jesus and he's given you a new heart, you can tap into that power by begging the Lord for help and admitting your weakness, by saying, I am inadequate, I am unable to change this. I am stuck in a pattern where I continue to hurt myself and other people in my sin, but God gave me a new heart. I need to start living as if I'm already living in victory, and I do that through prayer. And so someone that is praying all the time and begging God for help isn't weak. They just know that their weakness isn't an obstacle for the Lord to then show his strength. In fact, he's looking for opportunities to show his sufficiency in our weak lives. And so my response to looking at this passage is saying, I just need to pray more. Everything in this world distracts me from prayer, and yet it is the one thing that God says I can do so that he can fill me with his strength. And so, Father, would you make us a prayerful people? 
Would you help us not just to have set times of prayer, although that's good and necessary and modeled in the scriptures, but help us to have spontaneous prayer. Help us to constantly pray and say, oh, Lord, I need help again. Lord, here I go again, going down that dark path. Save me, Lord. Distract me from this, Lord. Get me back on your path, God. Lord, the more that we can cry out to you and admit who we are and ask you for help, the more confident we can be in life that you've called us to big things, that you've called us to overcome obstacles, that you've called us to make a difference in this world. But you're gonna do it through our lives as we depend on you through prayer. So do that work, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, we have a prayer team available that would love to talk to you about Jesus or your prayer requests. And so please come forward for prayer. We'll see you next week. God bless.